0: Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sense and Signal podcast. Uh, and today we are excited, uh, Dota and I are excited to have uh, a guest on today by the name of Zoe Fragu, who is an organizational psychologist and leadership developer out of Athens, Greece. And um, she's currently working on her PhD in... Uh, psychometrics and quantitative psychology and is working as a consultant for several uh, leadership training organizations and I'll I'll, uh, let Zoe kind of fill us in on on some of her consulting work and some of her studies so Zoe who else do you work with and uh, consult with as far as leadership training and development? Uh,
1: Hello for starts good evening from Greece Uh, thank you very much for having me over to your wonderful podcast Uh, I'm working indeed as an organizational psychologist and I operate in the full spectrum of my science. Therefore, I would say that 50% of my job is with uh, corporations all over the world where I lead uh, employee trainings, sensitivity trainings for minority rights, anything that has to do with team building activities, even games and uh, crisis management and leadership development projects. And then... I also have my private clients. that They're also global, mostly in uh, the tech industry. And they usually come to me, I wouldn't say for psychotherapy per se, but more for soft skills training. Or uh, they might have uh, something that's stressing them over in their work environment. Or they would like to change the direction, but they're not sure what's the way they should go to. And yeah, this is pretty much it.
0: Nice. So I've, I had a chance to read some of your... Um... Blog posts uh, about leadership, and one of the, one of the ones that struck me as highly interesting that Jordan and I have been talking about a lot lately is the blog post you did on toxic positivity in the workplace versus psychological positivity. And uh, I know you made a reference to the unbearable lightness of being by Milan Kundera, who's one of my favorite authors, and I love that book. So it got me to thinking about, you know, how can a book like that? What what can a book like that teach us about? themes around toxic positivity in the workplace or just leadership in the workplace?
1: Very interesting question because for such personally I prefer novels and literature when it comes to not just leadership development but in general uh, the development of a person in their work life. I even prefer them from uh, business books or leadership books or self-help books and the reason is that most of the times all of these kind of books they tend to create more guilt than actual help. And the people that they actually help are the people that don't need so much help to begin with. Mm. Therefore, in a a literature form, it's easier for a person to relate without feeling guilty for the things that they have managed or the things that they haven't managed. And it's also much easier because they can get a lot of lessons in a more subconscious way, in the form of uh, innuendos, for example. And uh, as a result, I tend to promote and recommend novels to my clients all the time when it comes to coaching, not just Kundera, although Kundera is my favorite uh, artist Oh, nice. My favorite book. I love Immortality, too. Yes, I love him. And I feel like every time I read the book of Kundera, uh, it's like somebody offered to me a cup of wisdom that I need now to consume. And then in three years later, I'm ready for his next book. (laughs) But uh, also I use other artists as well. Like uh, One of the books that I tend to recommend, it's called The Eye in the Sky. And mm. it is by Philip Dick. He's the same uh, author that did The uh, Man in the High Castle, Blade Runner, yes. a lot of books. And it's a very interesting book when we are on the topic of uh, corporate culture, in my opinion. Because right. it can show you in a very grotesque and you know, science fiction way. How, when everybody uh, operate in their own system, in their own value system, they are very good. They have no problem. They think everything's working fine. But when they start operating in someone else's conscience and in someone else's value system, then they feel so much pressure. So it's a very, I think I actually recommend it to you if you haven't heard of it. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I'll, t- I'll definitely check that out. I'm a big advocate as well of, looking at literature for, um, uh, leadership lessons. And I know there's a, actually a, a class at Harvard business school that, that does that looks at different types of, or pieces of literature to pull out leadership lessons.
2: And why do you, that's interesting. And I've, and I, it's you, you, you two have probably have come to this conclusion a while ago. It sounds like I've only recently have come to the conclusion that, that, uh, fiction actually provides non-fictional advice to life um, to some degree. I've always been the person that was reading the books that you are not advocating for to some degree. Um, and I think through my trial and error, I started to discover that, yeah, I, I, what you said resonates with me. Um, can uh, can you maybe kind of expound on why is it, do we think that these novels uh, provide such valuable information for us? I think you touched on it, but it, I'm just curious, because mm-hmm. I, I have my theories. Uh,
1: because for starts, in a very uh, non-pushing way, they cultivate empathy. When you're reading something, you create your own images, you create your own perception, and you create your own expectation about the hero, or how they look, or how they're experiencing their life. And that means that it's a perfect opportunity for projections. Everything you're reading, you're not really there. So you're like the director of what you're reading. So it's much easier for you to project your own self and your own motivations into these fictional stories. While when you're reading something that's already made and everything's very clear, when you are a leader, you need to do A, B, C, D. You don't have this uh, time or this space to explore your creativity and your imagination as well. And for you to put yourself into these situations, you just absorb the information as it comes to you. So as a result, when you lead, uh, in general, I mean, of course, there are exceptions, but mm-hmm. overall, when you read a literature book, you get some lessons without even understanding most of the times that you got a lesson. But then right. you revisit some things and maybe you have a new perception about things that you didn't even know that you acquired. But then when you read uh, a leadership book or a self-help, self-help book even more, many times you end up feeling even emptier. In a sense mm. of, it's so easy, why can't I do it? And it's there, and why isn't it working for me? These books, they tend to leave outside completely contextual factors to the point that they make all social subjects as if they are individual subjects. In the sense that the person that is born in a perfect environment, of course, they don't have the same opportunities to grow as a person who is not born in a perfect environment. And they have, let's say, work. Which is a bigger part of the world, by the way, than the w- part of the world that has everything and it's perfect and it's working. And this is why I think.
2: Interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I think there's an evolutionary aspect to it too. Like storytelling is a way we've historically transmitted information from one generation to the next and built our culture. And you know, I, I don't think that's often as appreciated as, as it should be today. That that literature and storytelling are conduits for transferring knowledge. And, and as you say, empathy um, in that blog post, you also talked about toxic positivity and workplace uh, or psychological posit- versus psychological positivity in the workplace, which is something Joda and I have been recently discussing in some previous podcast episodes. And I just want to see what you, you know, what is toxic positivity to you and in, in the workplace and what, what's the detriment of toxic positivity to getting things done. And how okay. can you turn that into
2: positive positivity?
1: <laughs> uh, it's actually a concept that I started uh, thinking about during uh, the first confinement, during COVID. And up to that point, uh, it's not. it never really occurred to me. It wasn't something that I, I would uh, probably notice because it wasn't really relevant to me. But then during the first confinement, it was everywhere, all these blog posts or all these podcasts or all these shows that were like, you need to be proactive, productive during confinement and uh, uh, you need to start uh, something and you need to figure out a way to keep yourself uh, uh, occupied. And uh, why didn't you learn Chinese during confinement? What <laughs> were you doing? You were having all this time.
2: Well, and, you didn't? I did. I, I did. Um, I did.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I started thinking that
0: you learned Chinese checkers. <laughs> That's what. <he> <laughs> yeah.
1: I just started thinking that this is a tragic situation. People are dying, and those that are not dying, they're afraid about themselves and about their health or about the people they love. And we are locked in. I haven't seen my friends since forever. I don't know when we're going back to work and there are people that they've lost their jobs already and there are other people that will lose their jobs. And at the same time, the parents, I mean, I'm not going to lie, they seemed like they were losing it <laughs> with their children all day with their home and they were having to do the e learning situation. And it was like we were getting all these messages from everywhere that we need to ignore the actual situation and our actual emotions instead of validating them. And we have to pretend that everything is fine and not just that everything's fine, but one step forward, we need to push ourselves into being very positive and to find the opportunity in this situation and to find the, uh, the glory and the joy because, you know, it's basically like paid leave and it wasn't like paid leave. Not at all. It wasn't. I mean, yeah, sure. Some people managed to be pro- productive, but then there were much more people that ended up having burnout because they didn't validate mm-hmm. their actual emotions and much more people that get go depressed because instead of feeling sorry or feeling bad or feeling angry when they should feel angry I mean when it was a healthy emotion to feel angry or sad they were pushing themselves to find the positive side on something that well it wasn't positive it was a very negative thing it was a pandemic since when do we have to change the perception into the most objective of things. It's a pandemic. No, it's not positive.
2: <laughs> and yeah. it's
1: okay. That doesn't mean that you need to sleep all day or that you need to get depressed on that. You need to cry on the couch, but that's completely different than not being self-aware or not acknowledging the situation and not giving yourself time and space to breathe and to process it on your own timing.
2: It's interesting. So, what do you think are the forces? Are there any? Yeah. You know, what do you think are the forces that are sort of pushing people to have to put pretty bows or to always uh, what have a Pollyannish approach to uh, the world around them, both externally from organizations and then in their life? And what are these forces that's making us mm-hmm. behave this way, from your vantage point?
1: Yeah, I would say that in a macro level. Uh, It's a little bit of also into fashion. It's very trendy. There are a lot of mantras of be positive and, you know, everything's going to work out. Uh, Life is a rainbow. And so it's very much, you know, new age. Yeah. But then in the micro level, it's a very classic uh, defense mechanism. And one of the most immature ones, I might add, Uh, people have internal conflicts, and when they need to address these internal conflicts and deal with them, sometimes they're not able to. Therefore, what we do is we develop defense mechanisms that don't allow this internal conflict to, con- to consume us. One of the most immature ones is denial. This doesn't happen. This isn't what's happening. No. Uh, another one is, of course, you might have heard, we referred before, is projection. Uh, it's not me who is stressed. You are the one who's stressed. Mm. No, you're you're stressed. I'm perfectly fine. Then there is, for example, a rationalization. Or, okay, yeah, and I can do it like that that. So no, no, I'm not stressed. And in any case, when people have conflicting emotions, there are so many ways that are leading to not validating them and learn how to ignore them and pushing them under the carpet instead of actually acknowledging them and find healthy ways to cope with them.
2: You know, I'm wondering, so the, one of the subjects that Dan and I have talked about is, is like you said, on this. And We've discussed this a little bit in some previous podcasts, but we've also just, in generally over the years, have talked about sort of the different dynamics of signaling from an organizational perspective. And recently, as he mentioned, we've been talking about this concept, the terminology and the concept of toxic positivity. And one of the areas that concerns me when I see... Uh, toxic positivity but what i deem to be what i think is toxic positivity is the inability to actually look at a problem uh practically or pragmatically or truthfully and it concerns me when i see in organizations having toxic positivity um again we're self-defining toxic positivity right so other people have their own versions of that but um is that you end up with this sort of raw rah culture that can easily end up sort of pushing uh, truth and reality that needs to be addressed underneath the carpet because you are in this positive mode. And anybody who dares challenge that toxic positivity ends up being sort of the skunk in the room. And that's kind of mm-hmm. something. Is, is, does that resonate with you at all? Is that something that you could think?
0: Why of? did you bring that up, Joda?
1: oh guys i did send something but i didn't want to mention anything (laughs) 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 yeah it's interesting uh but uh overall in corporations it's still not um understood that uh conflict resolution it's not the same thing as conflict management Most of the corporations, what they tend to do is conflict resolution, which means in a very diplomatic way, they find a way to deflect the problem and deflect the conversation and, uh, you know, have good relationships with everyone. But they never really actually push the problem in the sense that they're going to be a solution and we can move after that. And I think that's what uh, this culture is actually feeding. It's not necessarily about the toxic positivity, I would say that this is uh, one of the symptoms, but not necessarily the problem. And even one of the results of the actual problem, which is that not just in corporations, it's just in in corporations, we tend to see these things uh, in a bigger scale, but also people in their personal lives, when they can postpone something that is not pleasant, they will find any means in the world to postpone it. As much as yep. they can, even even when they know that it's going to be much worse later and the conflict's going to be bigger. Still, if they can postpone it until the end of time, they will do it.
2: We probably see that in politics a lot, too. Right. That's like literally translated. Oftentimes, politicians will probably not want to address something until they're probably out of the office or they can put it to the next person. So I, I can see it in a lot of areas. Yeah. yeah. Of course. I, 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 you know, it's an interesting psychological
0: observation. And I know your, your studies are in in psychological, organizational psychology. So what, what drew you to that as a, um, as a discipline to get Mm -hmm. into, to study? What, what pulled you into it? And, you know, a lot of what Joda and I talk about too, is the importance of people making meaning of their work and how that's really important. And part of meaning is purpose, purpose purpose-making. So, What is the purpose? What's your purpose in pursuing uh, your degree in organizational psychology and and doing your consulting work?
1: Well, I also have actually a clinical license and I even did my internship in the psychiatric hospital. I was doing alcoholic rehabilitation, but um, well, I was always very business oriented. Uh, I started working in corporations while studying at the same time. And it was always very thrilling for me. The What I can say, I can only describe as a by default pathogeny that runs most of the times corporate culture. So I got a little fascinated with that. And the more the time was passing, the more I was getting interested into how we can find some ways to make corporate culture healthier in order to help people. And not just help people, but also help corporations because, frankly, Gen Z are coming and they don't care they really don't care they prefer not working than working in an environment that's uh, not suitable for them and it's not healthy therefore corporations will actually gonna have a very big problem with finding employees very nearly in the future and they already are they already are yeah and although i never really had a lot of faith into corporations especially in the beginning of my career now it's uh, better I I always had a lot of faith on people Mm -hmm. and uh, I became really fascinated with developing more tools into helping people having an easier life in the part where they're spending at least the one third of their time. Yeah. And and for most of the people, their work is not just something they do. It's something they self identify with. Therefore, when something I self identify with and it's uh, the source of my, self-awareness or even confidence or uh, my core identity and this particular place creates so much conflict because it's not a positive experience but it's a negative experience or even an experience that brings me burnout or uh, inner conflict then how can we expect people to be positive overall or mentally healthy
0: right yeah, I think that's a good purpose, and I think even I work in not you know in a higher ed setting, and I think we need that to ex- examine those very same things in our culture as well. I think it's it kind of transcends the corporate environment, and it's kind of true in all organizational cultures. And I I hear you with the Gen Z coming on board, and one thing that fascinates me is the intergenerational aspect of our organizations right now. You've got everyone from Gen Z coming in to Boomers exiting uh i'm gen we're gen x i think all all three of us are probably gen x right are are you a millennial
1: Oh, I'm a millennial, yeah. And I self identify as a millennial very much. (laughs)
2: I'm
1: a classic millennial that's stopping dinner to take a picture and
2: then we can move on. Well, Gen X does that too. (laughs) I have a lot of Instagram pictures of food. And I I do want to make, I do want to clarify everybody out there Gen X is not a boomer. We are not boomers. We got to make that (laughs) distinction. Nobody wants to be a boomer anymore. We never were a boomer. What are you talking about? (laughs)
0: <laughs> is. But yeah, the the, inter, the the dynamics of working in an intergenerational um environment is very interesting, you know, too I think from a leadership perspective in an organization cuz different generations do have different value systems um and I know there's been some studies on that and 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 people's values and um personalities change with time. We're not always completely fixed beings and so that's an interesting Aspect to it too, I think.
1: Yeah, I I think that people are scared. They're scared that they're gonna be outdated and they're gonna be replaced. Yep. And therefore, this doesn't give them the mental place to actually not, not be petty with the new ones that are coming and actually be helpful and share their knowledge and mentor. On the one hand, we push people to mentor the young's and special corporations, but then on the other hand. How many times did an employer fire their older staff so that they can replace them with younger, cheaper labor? So it's very conflicting, and it creates a lot of ambiguity as well, and people don't operate well in ambiguity. And that's what's creating the intergenerational chaos. You can't expect the older that have at this point more power in their hands to be forgiving and helpful and sharing with the youth when they don't feel safe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Like, Oh, here's this young person coming in. They're going to assert my power and and push me out. And, you know, because I I don't know if this is true in Greece. I know in the United States, it's, it's very much true. We have a very youth focused culture. Um, and, and we even have a culture like I made a joke just a few, uh, seconds ago about boomers but that's that's not necessarily my feeling about it it's just something that we see in the culture right now in the united states around um intergenerational resentment too right the and i don't know if that's true in greece as well but it's definitely true in the united states
1: well in greece we are very senior oriented as a culture and uh, seniority is much more important than talent orientation inside corporations so we usually have the opposite problem Uh, we don't leave any room and we don't appreciate talents. And even if someone is great, it's very difficult for them to get the promotion uh, on top of of the person that's the oldest in the company or the person that has been the most of the time in the company. So I would say that we're not there yet.
2: Right. It's interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, the, the Z generation is coming in and even the millennial, everything, every generation brings in a new, Spirit to the world that we that we live in, which is great. Yep. It adds it it it's our, it's Darwinian in, in its essence. It's evolutionary in its spirit. Um, and what I don't think has happened though is that these organizations are are acknowledging and appreciating that variation. Um, I'm reading a book, and I'm not going to be able to tell you recall it. I think it's called Creativity. I could be wrong, so I will definitely put it in the, in the links when we're done with this. But it talks about, it expands on what it means to be creative. And it, it, there's some chapters in there that express the variations of creativity upon like this generation aspect, how it's important to identify that that each stage of life generates a different modality of creativity, of of creation. And each one of those stages need to be embraced. And, and I think from my own anecdotal story, the reason I am where I'm at now is because the life I live now, I could have had that state, I could have gotten there quicker, who knows, depending on the circumstances I was in. But, you know, the reason when I was 21 or 22 is hired to do what I did was because I was youthful, energetic, I had a lot of fire. I did not have a lot of life experience. I, I didn't see the patterns. I couldn't identify the patterns because I didn't. I wasn't around long enough to see the ebbs and flows of things. Now at my age and what I've done, I've seen a lot of things. What was new was old. What was old was new. I can see the strategies. And so it gives me a strategy mind. And so this creativity book talks about leveraging those things. And I think organizations um, shortchange the, those aspects, they actually have real solid conversations around the value of the various stages of basically the the growth of a human being in life. Every stage has a value, right?
1: Yeah, of course. Every stage has a value. It's just that it's not very easy for uh, each step to necessarily appreciate the value of the other step because there's also competition. And this competition is very highly empowered. And it's empowered by organizations more than collegiality is empowered. Therefore, at the end, survival instincts kick. So it's not very easy for people to ignore their instincts of survival. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So given all that, you know, your your specialty is leadership training or one of your specialties is leadership training. If you were in an ideal world going to design, had all the resources at your disposal – to develop a, a leadership training, what are some um, frameworks and theories or strategies that you think every organizational leader should have uh, to navigate? Especially, you know, we're still in these uncertain times in late era COVID, and things are still being disrupted. Traditional forms of how we run organizations are still being disrupted. So, what are things that you think leaders should know moving forward?
1: Mm-hmm. For starters, I don't believe in leadership development outside the context of the corporate culture of uh, the organization. Of course, I believe in leadership development, but it has to be always hand-by-hand with the corporate culture. What might work in one organization as a leadership trait is not necessarily what's working for another. Let's think, for example, a tech company where innovation and creativity should be two of the biggest traits you need to empower to your leaders, and then let's think military a military organization where probably strict hierarchy and discipline or uh, respect should be more important and probably are also more important and more empowered. Therefore before designing any leadership program, I would say you need to map the culture very clearly. Be sure that uh, what management is telling you that applies to the culture is what actually applies to the culture. Because you would find it very interesting, but most of the times there is a lot of discrepancies there. People might think that this is what uh, intensifies our culture and this is the main event, but it's not necessarily the truth. And not because they really want to lie, but they don't necessarily notice uh, these things. And that's why it's good to also use experts uh, to this process. So first of all, we identify the culture. And then depending on this culture, we identify also the elements that are helping us in the context of this culture. And then we design a leadership program that intensifies these particular traits while removing or at least uh, reducing the the traits that create issues or challenges.
0: Nice. So you're definitely more in the school, the situational, contextual leadership training like different types of leadership behaviors and strategies are going to be effective in different types of situations uh, or organizational contexts.
1: Yeah, because cultures are not uh, bad or good. They are either functioning or non-functioning. And that's how we should approach them. If something is working, there's a reason it's working. So it makes sense for you to study it and understand which elements are going to help you make it work even better. And, for example, if me as a person, I'm not a very I don't know, competitive person and I prefer working in more relaxed and slow rhythms and in my own time in order to be creative, then I need to be working in a culture like that. But then if a person is very competitive and very fierce and super assertive, the, this same environment that will help me thrive would be the same environment that would lead to them being in a comfort zone and stop growing. Therefore, I wouldn't say that there are necessarily bad or good traits it's mostly one is it working for the culture and the organization and b do i have the right people
0: so i i, I heard another interview with you where you described culture culture as a jenga game which is you <laughs> know a game where you have a, a tower of blocks and you pull one out and then you kind of stack it up can you expand on that metaphor how how culture is like a jenga game and i guess and even connecting it to organizational change. I mean, what is culture for you, organizational culture for you, and um, and how is it like a Jenga game?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, corporate culture, there are a lot of theories about it, but I would say that overall, we need to think that it has three dimensions. The first dimension is uh, what we see with our own eyes. So we enter a building, how our people are dressing, or how their offices are decorated and uh, how they're sitting in these offices and do they even have some kind of traditions do they celebrate all together so this would be the first dimension and then we have the ideas and their values and all these things that they put on their website and they advertise and if you ask someone let's tell me uh, what's uh, the ideas that re- uh, your company is reflecting all these things that we're going to tell you and then there is a third dimension that's far more subconscious and it is what we call the um, undercover ideas or the undercover values. So it's all these things that make the organization what it is, but no one will tell you about it. For example, let's say that they are gossiping a lot. Everyone is gossiping. Mm. Well, this is not something they would ever tell you. But then it would be a very important trait for this organization if everyone is doing it and nobody has a problem with it. Or let's say that this is an organization that if you're doing a good job, but you're not doing anything extra, you're not like over no matter what the quality of your job is, then you will never be promoted. This is also something that no one would ever tell you. But it is something that's actually creating the full puzzle of this organization. And when I say that I tend to approach organizations like Jenga's, I mean that if anyone has ever played the game Jenga, you know that. You pick up pieces and each person put them all together, they create this, uh, you know, tower, and then they start moving out pieces. And you move out pieces, but until a specific point, no matter how many, it, it might look very grotesque, it might look very weird, but somehow it's still standing. So the problem happens when you just take out the wrong piece and the whole thing collapses. So that's why I say it looks to me like a Jenga. I might not like it when I see it, and I might find it funny, or I might find it bizarre, but if it's standing, well, it's working. So I need to work with that if you pull again. out
0: that one cultural element that's exactly. holding it all together, it will all collapse.
1: Yeah, so I actually uh, I run some uh, culture change projects, and this is actually, I think, the part of my job that I love the most. And in the beginning, since we're making board games uh, metaphors, and I'm a bit of a geek myself, uh, it always looked like a Cluedo. Cluedo, I think you pronounce it, you say? (laughs) It's this game that you try to find who did the murder, in which room. Oh, yeah, Clue. uh, Cluedo, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it looks like that for me, because I'm trying to understand exactly that. So what pace I can remove and what pace I shouldn't remove, because if I play with this pace, it might all collapse. And in a recent project that I was running, when I actually asked them, what do you think that are the main elements of your uh, culture? Of course they told me, we're very creative and we are very uh, team players and uh, we really love growth and it's perfect. When I did my own mapping and I actually got to know them, what I found is two things. They were very results focused, but they were also very drama focused. So the people that weren't drama oriented they couldn't be there. They, they had a very low retention rate because it was a part of the culture. But also, the people that were only drama-oriented but they didn't always put the work, they weren't working as well. So for me, it might seem weird that there is such a big tolerance to creating drama every day. But it was working. And everyone was okay with that. And they were feeling very happy with the culture. So who am I to judge?
2: Zoe, I'm curious. uh, Do, I think it's kind of a known commodity that humans are rational beings. And when I say rational, meaning that we rationalize um, what we already believe. And so it's really, I think there's been studies have been shown that, you know, It's really hard to convince somebody to believe something other than they already believe, even if you show them insurmountable truths. In fact, I think there's even evidence that shows if you show them really detailed evidence to the contrary, it actually makes them go the other direction for some reason. So what are the and with that thought? And any level of agreement we might have on that thought, what are the what kind of impediments do you have when you are in that situation? Because you said they were they perceive themselves as one way. You said not that you weren't necessarily that, but you are really more this. Do you get do you get pushback and 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 other uh, are, are there ways are there areas where you have to kind of help facilitate that bridge? And what are the impediments to that?
1: Well, usually I don't start my collaborations with a. Uh expressing my opinions about their situation. Okay. <laughs> Most of the times I ask a lot, a lot, a lot of questions and uh, from very different sources, I collect a lot of uh, important pieces and info. And uh, then I start making some assumptions and again, asking for extra information. And I'm always trying to look uh, very, uh, you know, like you can never be sure because they're actually Mm -hmm. experiencing it and you're just the third eye outside. Although you're an expert, you're still not the one experiencing it. It's their system and you are the new member in their system. So first of all, I ask a lot of things and then I'm making some questions about whether I'm right or wrong. And after I have established a relationship with the people that I'm working with, when they understand that it's a safe environment and there is no judgment there, And we can both talk openly, then it's much easier for them to hear even the hard truths. But having said that, I'm also pretty much a tough love person. I'm not the kind of person that's like, everything is amazing, perfect (laughs) guys. How are you doing? No.
2: Tell them what they need to hear, not not necessarily what they want to hear, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I know there
2: there are companies there are I've had I've engaged with um various consultants over my life and there are definitely those types of consultants that are exactly what you just described the the sort of like you know what, they give us a lot of money and they want to hear us say really good things about them and they do that so and that and does they, no they would, favors
1: yeah i mean they're free they will find so many people like that and again i don't judge i mean whatever is working for everyone when i was much younger i would hear someone that instead of therapy they would tell me yeah yeah, therapy therapy doesn't help me but I have found these uh, I don't know guru that is doing yoga and that's what's helping me I would I used to be very judgmental in the beginning of my career I would say but no this isn't like scientific you need to find someone who is actually a scientist but right now I really understand that whatever any person can handle and whatever they can stand that's what they should do not everything's for everyone and something that for someone, might be extremely helpful. For someone else, might be emotional collapse.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the tools I know in your toolkit and that you're studying is psychometrics. Uh, <laughs> and I imagine you use that in your uh, work with organizational change and training and development. So, and I know there are many definitions of psychometrics. What's your definition? How would you define psychometrics for the, the layman listener?
1: I would say that in a very plain and simple way it's the science of measuring uh, people's personality traits it's how we can say a very simple test for example that can tell you you're an extrovert or you're an introvert but then when it comes to corporate culture and psychometrics it's the exact traits that are interested in this particular context that can influence the entire uh, productivity of the organization or the entire climate, or even uh, the culture,
0: per se. And so I imagine some of that's based on the uh, what some people call the big five, the the um, five-factor model personality traits, introvertism, extrovertism, mm-hmm. uh, openness to experience, and and so forth, neuroticism. Um, what are some traits, you know, I guess it's all, it's like you keep going back to context right organizational context because every culture organizational culture is different and so i imagine depending on the context that would determine what organizational tra- or personality traits are going to be a, the best fit for the the organizational culture is would that be a, a good assumption or
1: on the on the one hand yeah that's true but also at the same time uh not even in the same organization its department might have different needs so let's right. say that In the marketing department, you might care for people to be more extroverted because they might have uh, a lot of PR to do or they participate in events or you might need them to talk to your clients. Therefore, maybe that's an important trait. But then at the accounting, for example, maybe you prefer them and you understand that if they're more introverted, they're more uh, detail-oriented. And at the same time, this might be more fruitful for your organization. So uh, it's not one thing that fits all. It does make sense to measure it so you understand where are the trends inside the organization. But then depending on the job also and the core business of its department, uh, some things are working better. And five-factor is one of the many psychometric tools that exist. But there are others that are measuring different aspects of the personality as well.
0: What are some of the others?
1: Uh, one that's very, very uh, modern and I would say very popular is the MBTI, Myer Bricks Type Indicator. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. It has um, it gives you 16 personalities, but but also these 16 personalities, they might have an assertive type or a more turbulent type, so they differentiate as well in their behaviors, depending on that aspect as well. And this is a very interesting uh, tool as I've, well, especially when it comes I've to training. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're you it? Yeah.
0: Oh, I've taken I've taken Myers Briggs. I'm uh on the Myers Briggs, my uh cartoon character's Bugs Bunny.
1: Okay. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Nice.
0: yeah, no, and so what are the you know, how, how do you use the how can an organizational leader or someone who's uh consulting on organizational change use uh, psychometrics to inform how they approach their work?
1: What are some there of the tools many- that you can There are many different, uh, not not just ways, but different stages that you can use them. So when it comes to mapping an organization, maybe it makes some sense to use uh, a tool, like like we said, Big Factor, for example, uh, because the Big Five, because you can understand if this organization is more extroverted or introverted, or if this organization scores in a specific way, in a specific trade. Uh, I would say that usually the two best stages and parts of the processes that make sense to use psychometrics is for starts recruitment because it can help you understand better the culture fit and then uh, training and development and uh, of course career planning and succession planning. Uh, It helps you understand more things than just productivity as like what is this person's motivation and what are they Mm -hmm. interested in and what suits them according to their personality. So, it makes sense to use this kind of tools in order to push people towards a specific direction or help them grow towards a specific direction that they're interested in and it also suits them.
0: Yeah. I Again, I'm wondering if there's a cultural difference in the United States and between the United States and Greece because here what i see is psychometric tools used a lot for counseling or advising like i'm, I'm thinking of students cuz i work at a college and sometimes people will take those assessments to kind of help them determine career paths and stuff like that occasionally uh, you know in certain in certain sectors of the account, or, of the of business they'll use it as part of a, a screening tool to as far as hiring i've even even i'm in a i am an I tend to apply for executive uh, executive level positions now and I, I applied for a position in Texas recently where they had me take one and I found myself a little bit insulted when uh, I was sent that uh, that test because I was like well I'm I'm kind of in an executive level position why should I be taking this personality test so I, I can see where it, it, it's a use, some people could perceive it as a very useful tool in certain contexts, and that other times, depending on how it's delivered, kind of balk at it. So, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I have a lot of American clients actually as well. And the biggest difference that I've seen when it comes to psychometrics is that it's much more uh, common knowledge in USA, while in Greece, okay. it's still something very, very new and very trendy. So, people are not used to it. So, Uh, They don't necessarily trust it as a process as well because it's something very disruptive. And uh, my thoughts are that um, psychometric tools, they offer us some guidance and they help us understand people that we don't know uh, better and sooner, but they're not predictive tools necessarily as to a person's uh, career or growth. And in the end of the game, It's all about motivation. If a person really wants to do something, so many times we've seen that they've managed to do something by fighting their character and fighting their personality, and they actually succeeded. We've seen CEOs that are extremely introverted and they can't talk to people, but in the end, they've managed to become public speakers that are giving FedEx speeches. So it does give you a tendency, but in my opinion, the ethical way to use it is us to gain information uh, as to in which areas people need more help uh, for a development and training, right? But not necessarily whether they are uh, a great fit for your team, because you don't know it. And...
2: I have two questions, but I'm going to ask one. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. okay. I'll probably ask two, but we'll later on. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you're, what are the what are the risks? And are there any risks to applying? these metrics or these, these systems of, on sort of evaluating people? Is there something that can get in the way of success of leveraging these tools that you have to look at? There
1: are many dangers, uh, because for start, there are tools that are being used by humans. So, of course, the first danger is prejudice. If for some reason, it's like, a, I don't know, zodiac signs If for some reason, I really believe in zodiac signs and they think that, I don't know, Taurus is dangerous for me, I might be very prejudiced towards them. So, in the same sense, let's say that I use, I'm a and, and I use MBTI, I might have a very bad experience with a, I don't know ESTP, and therefore I ban my ESTPs. This is one danger. Then the second danger is that uh, at the end of the day, people can always leverage these tools, and for many reasons, in the sense that they might think that this is what the company needs to hear, so that's how I'm gonna complete this questionnaire, or they might even think that uh, that's the right answer, or. Yeah, you can understand what I mean. And then a third, which personally I found that is the most big challenge, at least to my, for me and for my clients and for my projects, not everyone is very self-aware. Many people, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want to trick you and they don't necessarily want to lie. But many people, they actually don't have a lot of self-awareness and self-knowledge. So when they complete these questionnaires, they answer them based on how they think they are and not how they actually are. So why should I recruit someone based on that? Of course, having said that, of course, having a person that's very self-aware is important, but at the end of the day, it depends also on the job. If it's a very high specialty that I can't find, it's very rare, maybe at his job, is it he's amazing and the fact that he didn't complete the questionnaire correctly in the psychometric test why should it be so important we should always use these tools these tools are here to help us and to guide us they're not here to dictate what the right answer is we always need to have experts assessing the results and doubting the results and second guessing the results
2: i i I like that i agree i think uh um, we all know in today's world, expertism is kind of a four-letter word for some cult, for certain people at times, and I think uh, we need to bring that back into the conversation um, more. And I agree; uh, these tools are signals, right? And sometimes they can only be read correctly by someone who actually knows how to administer them. So I think it's important to actually state that as a as a strong perspective. My um, a second question, though, I was just wanted to ask, and Dan, I'll let you kind of come in and just have to answer right away. Um, you brought up motivation. And I think that's a mm. big thing and I'm wondering um, in your in your expertise and what you do, is there a is that, a, is that something in your in your role is to discover a motivation or an energy for them to, ex- to to excel in what they're doing or to get to the goals that they want to achieve? I'm just wondering what how does motivation play in in the efforts um, that you provide uh, your uh, uh, the, the organizations that you work with?
1: Well, the first thing they told us in uh, the psychology university was how many psychologists do you need to change a lamp? And the answer (laughs) was one, but the lamp needs to want to change. (laughs) So, of course, when you're driving either a leadership development program or even a building or a a culture change program, the most important aspect is do people want to do that? And are people motivated to help you? You can't change anyone that doesn't want to change themselves. we don't transform people. People transform themselves. We're just there to guide them and ask the right questions and give a different perspective. But at the end of the game, it's, it's one of them that's going to do and act or not do and act. And my system to find people's motivation is very, very unique. Uh, if you've never heard about it, I ask them. I literally ask them what motivates them and most of the times they actually know and you will find it very shocking that no one really asks them.
0: Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Joda and I have done some work on motivation. Uh, there's a, some researchers I've been investigating that have a whole um, test on trying to uncover your your core values and what motivates you. It's kind of fascinating area of research. So what what are some Answers What are some responses people give you when you ask them what motivates you? What are some common things you hear?
1: Uh, well, money, (laughs) very often, money forget about that. It's funny that nowadays it's a little bit of a taboo to say that uh, money motivates you when it comes to work. You necessarily need to find something very unique and uh, amazing to say, but most of the times, well, people do need to work in order to get paid. So it's always money and, uh, of course, reward, but not necessarily in a money sense, but in an appreciation form and uh, Mm -hmm. in understanding that they're important. Then uh, another important thing uh, is um, opportunities, opportunities to grow and opportunities to contribute and uh, opportunities to be part of something that makes sense. And then values, of course, Especially nowadays, younger people, they need to be in organizations that have a larger purpose and they're not just there for profit, but they also uh, have something to add in the society and uh, help with the world. And yeah, these are very common answers, I would say. Yeah,
0: yeah. All those make sense. So I know one of the things that you do as well is you lead trainings and you've kind of spoken to that already what are some strategies that you use when you you come in you've done the mapping you've used psychometrics you kind of are starting to understand the the culture and maybe you're charged with leading some training to create some change what what do you do how do you provide that training because i know you you've mentioned before that you use some artistic kind of techniques and you like to really build engagement (laughs) with folks
1: artistic sportive but in general i try for my trainings to be very highly energetic and very highly interactive Uh, people don't really learn by just listening to you speaking for five hours about what's important you need to find ways to engage them and make it relevant to them and another thing that at least works for me is that I don't like keeping distance from the people that I'm training. So I'm trying to be really close to them and uh, uh, create a situation that is very open and they feel safe to open up and they feel safe to share. So in a sense, I go with an agenda, but I also leave room to people to co-create the trainings with me. But yeah, I use a lot of uh, artistic elements. Like you said, I use a lot of theater sometimes. I design also games, I design uh, activities. Everything that will push people out of their comfort zone and help them validate their true emotions and face the exact challenges they're facing and not the ones that they think they're, ch- they're uh, facing.
0: What's one of the favorite games you've developed exactly. or you've offered some of your clients? Yeah, yeah. You have one that's your favorite? favorite?
1: Yeah, I don't know. About, I, I'm like the singers. They're all my children, all of my songs. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> they're all my games. But I can tell you about the last one that I developed because uh, I developed it with one of my best friends. Uh, he's an artist. He's a singer, a writer, a composer, a little bit of everything. But he manages to be successful in all of these things. I'm really jealous of this friend of mine. And uh, he came uh, some time ago to my place and we decided like to do a very creative uh, weekend where we're going to design this amazing game. And... It turns out that when we started working on it, it took us two hours and then we didn't have to do for the rest of the weekend. So we, <laughs> we invited the rest of our friends. So uh, this is a game that involves, it. I wouldn't say involves, it helps people uh, progress in their emotional intelligence through collaborating uh, in an actual art project. But it also nice. involves some elements of uh, stand-up comedy and, uh, a little bit of music and a little bit of fun. And it's, yeah, it's very, very, very nice, I think.
2: Let me let me ask that question one more time. I'm going to make it a little more difficult. Uh, so, Dan, so I run some workshops myself uh, at times. And um, I, too, am trying to figure out ways to get people out of their skin. Uh, you and I, or we discussed earlier, not on this on this show, but we were discussing previous out of their
0: shell, not their skin. Oh, excuse me, you're right, out of their, out of their shell. <laughs> well, you know, it
2: depends. Uh, but so, uh, um, so there are certain character types that are particularly resistant in these situations, and I'm wondering, w- without asking any specific secret sauce that you might have or any, I what what kind of what kind of tools or do you find particularly significant or valuable to really get people to move into those areas that are uncomfortable for them, which is basically mm. expressing themselves, which for a lot of people, like we discussed, there are certain types of people and organizations that have real tough times with those. And I'm just curious, what do you do to extract them, to get them at least moving in the right direction?
1: Mm-hmm. I believe a lot in uh, individual attention and individual approach. So when there is a, an actual member of the team that I understand that they face a lot of challenges or they create a lot of challenges for others, then I won't necessarily start my work with them in the middle of a room with 50 other people. I would start probably with coaching sessions one-to-one just with this one person in order to understand what their motivation is and what their issues are and understand why they're there and see how I can help them. And then only when they are ready and only when we have established a relationship of trust and they feel that I can help, I will bring them on board in a group activity. But then taking someone who let's say is bullied, for example, and you know they're bullied and just put them in a room full of the people that are bullying them and then tell them, Okay, now we're here all together, let's go play a game right. in the mountain, of right. course it's not gonna work.
0: Right. Of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could I could ask another question about the bullying, but I, I um <laughs> And what that Dan looks bullies like me all culture. the time, and so, I, do. I just yeah. did. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we call it
1: we call it mobbing in work. I can't leave uh, from here and not put behind me the correct definition. So workplace bullying is called mobbing.
0: Mobbing, interesting. Mobbing, yeah, yeah. But I know we're at the bottom of the hour, so I wanted to, uh, or the end of our time together. I, How can people get in touch with you, Zoe, um, if they want to reach out to you for consulting services or for training?
1: Well, I'm always on my LinkedIn, so it's Zoe, And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm answering to all of my messages. I'm super active. Like I said before, I'm a millennial, so I'm always on my phone.
0: Well, that's great. We'll put it. We'll definitely put a link to uh, your LinkedIn and the show notes. And uh, I think I know you have some other websites, too. We'll make sure to put uh, mm-hmm. put your information in the show notes so people can reach out and, and talk to you or reach out and ask you for your help. So this okay. has been super fascinating, Zoe. I really appreciate you. We both really appreciate you coming on and spending the this last hour with us.
1: Also, thank you. It was amazing for me as well. And I have to say publicly now that you are one of the most organized and fun interviews I ever had until now. So thank you very much for having me over.
0: Thank
2: you. Well, you raised the stakes for us yeah. when we did the break. <laughs> you did. We were we, like, we got to get this right. <laughs> you said you set a fire under our bottoms. They were like, okay, we let's. Gosh. Yeah. So we, did, we worked a little harder. So we the motivated 20. us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: See what I did there?
2: You're effective. You are, yeah, very, you you are very effective. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. We really appreciate it.